Paul, in this episode, we are going to finish up the last four stages of the ladder of empowerment that we began last time. This ladder lays out the stages and the process of creating a positive white anti-racist identity and all of the inevitable reactions and emotions that go along with those stages. Last episode, in episode 16, we discussed stages one through five, with the fifth being guilt and shame. We dug into guilt and shame quite a bit because a listener reached out to us who is experiencing that, and also because it's a really tough one. It's important to recognize guilt and shame as a normal, inevitable part of the process. Recognizing that is maybe the most powerful thing we can do to properly move through it. And moving past stage five of guilt and shame is a rather significant step forward in the process of creating a positive white anti-racist identity. If we move through that, which all of our listeners, I know you can, we're really getting somewhere. I almost see this process as two phases, with the first of getting through that guilt and shame step, and if you do that, entering a second phase. So let's talk about what moving into the second phase of this process looks like, which will help to give us clarity for all of us as to what we are working towards. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. Paul, first let me run something by you that I saw and found intriguing. So when talking about the identity process that we have been preaching since day one of this podcast, I really think of three thought leaders on the topic. So there's Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, who I've referenced a thousand times. And then there is Tima Okun, who created the ladder of empowerment that we are discussing And the other is Dr. Janet Hellams, who was on the forefront in many ways of creating a framework for the white identity process, and I know that she influenced the other two. So Dr. Hellams, after years and years of calling the different categories of the latter stages, has since changed her verbiage to calling them statuses. So I really like that. It's almost like stages is framing it up as one person being more advanced or more woke, my favorite word, Hmm. than another person, when really it's just a different current status that everyone has to go through, and it's where they're currently residing. What do you think of that? I like that too. I mean, it makes me think of, wasn't that like the thing back in the day with Facebook? Like, what's your current status? Like, what are you doing at the time? And you can kind of check in. Even now, obviously, you can check in. Like, this is what I'm doing now. But then something you're doing later is completely different. I think that's the true essence of being human. Like, we're not really in one place at one time. Yeah. And I think that's the same with the mindset. Like, as we've referenced a million times before, too, with Ibram X. Kendi, Mm -hmm. sometimes we're anti-racist, sometimes we're racist, sometimes we're not racist. We're sort of, like, flowing in between all those things all the time. Right. And you can move, like, backwards. So it's not like, oh, I'm at stage four, and I'm never in stage one through three again, which we talked about. Like, no, you're going to have times in one, two, three. And, like, the goal is to spend as much time in the higher statuses as possible. That's what we need. We need to be Mm -hmm. so open about talking about race that we just have a 
social media status of what <laughs> what status word i'm in denial yeah. defensiveness today here's why and here's yeah. how i'm gonna work through it this is why i'm staying away from a lot of people right now especially people of color like I, I, i'm just not in a good place so yeah. yeah yeah and it's good to have that self-awareness but, but yeah i think stages i also think of like levels like in video games like when and when you level up you don't go back right to the previous level right right you go down to the next level and you're also currently at that level so yeah i, I think stages is is a little bit limiting yeah, limits are a true humanity, which is very much more fluid than yeah. static. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm going to try to maybe say statuses as much as I can throughout this episode. And I have nothing but stages written, I think, so I'll probably not be <laughs> good at that. So let's recap the first five statuses that we talked about last episode so we have an idea of where we left off. So again, the first status is I'm normal, right? Which is where we do not see ourselves as white and assume racial differences are unimportant because they're individual. And then the second is what are you? So this is the point at which we have our first meaningful contact with a person of color and where we may be forced to notice firsthand that we're different and that racism or unfairness might be at work. So this is really when we start to feel some discomfort for the first time when starting to be confronted with that. And then the third status is be like me. So you really move into starting to challenge the idea of individuality, which we talked about as a tough one. And the idea here is that, you know, if there's a problem, it's that individual, right? It's it's not an overall bigger problem. There are just there are some racists or this person is just it's their characteristics. And there is anger of getting lumped in with other white people. And then once you move forward from that, the fourth is denial and defensiveness. So we talked a lot about this one because this is a big one, tough to move past. I, I see this all the time with denial and defensiveness. So the idea here is like, why do you have to make such a big deal about race all the time? We may believe that too much attention is placed on cultural differences or that people of color are overly sensitive. We deny that racism is the problem and believe that talking about racism is the problem. And when we do admit that racism is happening, we see it as isolated incidents. You know, it's that person who's a white supremacist. It's not like a daily grind, a part of every part of society. So this is a big one to get through. I think that what happens here is I see a lot as people are like, I just feel overwhelmed. I just see it all the time. People are talking about it so much. Why do we just have to make such a big deal about it all the time? It's just, it's everywhere. And that exhaustion piece, I think, falls here. And it, it can be a tough one to get through. And then finally, the fifth status that we talked about last time is guilt and shame. So that's the point at which many people begin to really understand that we must take responsibility for racism, even if we weren't personally involved in its historical foundations. And even if accusations of racism are not directed personally at us, we personalize them. So that's really where we ended up. And that's another big one. That's a tough one to get through. We just talked a lot about the difficulty of that. And especially that personalizing it, that's a big mm-hmm. one. Like, like just totally taking yourself out of it and seeing it at the bigger picture rather than like an individual accusation or on your personal character, Mm -hmm. which can really cause that guilt and shame. And and so that's really where we left off and we want to see how to move past that. What I thought might be helpful is for us to talk about like a a real life example of of something and, and where that falls in 
on these statuses. Mm. So an example I thought might be interesting to talk about is currently, at least in Minnesota here, but I think it's a nationwide thing, uh, there is a big backlash against equity programs in schools, particularly like middle schools and high schools. For example, in a school district here in Minnesota, um, there's like a program that teaches teachers to think about their unconscious biases and check that and ensure that you know they're not giving more preferences to white students or students that they identify with and talking about the historical data like black boys are five times mm. more likely to be suspended than than white students for example and there has been a massive pushback against that primarily from white parents so the idea is like white parents are saying you're teaching what i'm seeing the most of themes with this whole thing is you know you're teaching our students that they are oppressors because of their skin color uh, you're lumping them into a group, so you're just telling them that anything that they will succeed in, you know, is due to their privilege as a white person. And so there, it's led to like a ton of these really intense board, school board meetings and everything. So as I was reading this, I'm like, where does this fall in on, mm -hmm. on the spectrum, you know, with a lot of these these parents? And I think it's in status two, three, and four. And again, this kind of shows how it flows with the majority in three. And here's mm -hmm. why. So two again, is what are you? And that's really where you're forced to notice firsthand that we're different and that racism or unfairness might be at work. So I think for a lot of parents, it's that first kind of introduction to it. And it's like that discomfort starts to come in and it's like, oh, there might be unfairness at play here. Wait, no, you know, that can't be the case because of my experiences. And so that initial kind of just, hey, here's what's going on, I think is what a lot of parents are feeling. And then the majority, I think, are in status three, which is be like me. So the idea here, again, is that if there's a problem, it's that individual and that there's anger of getting lumped in with other white people. And I think that there's anger for their children, for them to lose their individuality, right? That like to tell them that their child is a member of that their group membership impacts them as well as their individuality. And so they're thinking that instead of, you know, the goal is getting to like saying, hey, we're not negating the uniqueness of any individual, but we're also not denying the impacts that group membership has on each individual. So it's a combination of the two. The fear is that, no, you're just going to say that, you know, I'm being lumped in with all the white people and my group membership is the most important person, but my child is their own person. And so I think that that one's huge there as well. And then, of course, there's some denial and defensiveness going on in there. Why do you have to make such a big deal about race all the time? Like a huge sentiment with that. There were some students who had a sign that was to that effect. So that's helpful for me to think about the context of a real-life example and something that our listeners or somebody might come across in a conversation to think about, you know, really how this has everyday impacts on everybody's individual journey. Yeah, I agree. I, I see those stages as well, you know, particularly the Be Like Me and I think there's just there's a trend within I don't know if it's American culture or Western culture or whatever, but it's I think certainly rooted in individualism that anytime there's a problem, there's less of a movement towards let's look at this as a systemic thing and really dig into what is the root problem here. So I mean another example I think of in the school setting is like bullying, mm -hmm. right? Like there's maybe some they put up signs or things like that, but for the most part, the approach is as soon as we see a sign of bullying or when it's reported or someone's caught bullying, we'll deal with that one individual. 
when in reality there's something about the culture of the school of the culture of the institution that is actually leading towards the bullying even within within parenting and, and raising kids too right but but that flies in the face of individualism and I mean it's a whole different approach to the problem yeah so th- the same goes with racism i'm sure lots of those parents would be all for a no tolerance policy you know anytime someone says the n-word it's immediate suspension i'm right. sure they'd all be totally for that right because it's again it's looking at it racism as an individual act rather as a systemic issue and then, you know, defensiveness, I think what I'm seeing a lot with critical race theory and hearing a lot of critical race theory and that that's rooted in defensiveness is, is sort of this white nationalism of any sort of criticism towards the United States is, and we, I think we've talked about this before, is yeah. is, uh, is bad. Yeah. You know, and, and I've heard that critical race theory is quote unquote anti-American. So there's just this major defensiveness that any any sort of criticism towards the United States is is unfounded it's disrespectful and it just has no place especially when we're talking about like minorities and immigrants they should just all be grateful for what they have because compared to like look at the state of things in other countries right right? right. so so that's a real that's a real barrier as far as you know when talking about defensiveness and at the root of that is we we want to be considered and feel like good people Mm -hmm. Right. Like that, that is that is a very core thing for people. And, and anytime race gets brought up, we start to feel like, well, if, if race exists, if I perpetuate that, if I am a part of that, that means I must mean I'm a bad person. And so the defenses go flying up. Right? Yeah. And like with critical race theory, you know, that's such a hot topic word with this example, mm-hmm. particularly because parents will be like, you know, you're trying to get critical race theory in here, critical race theory, critical race theory, just like it's been, it's thrown around without a mm-hmm. full understanding of what it is because what the conception is is that it's telling white people that they're bad, right. that they're oppressors, and then you mix that with, hey, they're doing this to my child, mm-hmm. and parents are just, you know, by nature, all humans are very protective. Mm-hmm. And when it's like you're telling my child that they're an oppressor or you're telling my child that they are only going to succeed or they've gotten what they've gotten because of their privilege. And then you, I've seen a lot of parents be like, hey, listen, like my, this is a very poor county. Like we are really struggling here yeah. and you're telling us that we have this privilege. And so it's yeah. it's all of those things that really, you know, you've we've talked about all of that in the past mm-hmm. episodes of, you know, the hierarchies, like all of these things that are seeped in that really lead to this defensiveness. And it a lot of it is just based in like a lack of education starting way long ago because parents mm-hmm. haven't mm-hmm. heard of it, have no idea. So it's just like a big time misconception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it, again, in an individualistic society, our default is to think about me. Right. Even when it's someone else's issues brought up. You know, our first insight is, well, what? But what about my issues? Mm-hmm. Like you, you saying you're oppressed. Well, I have all these. Like you're saying, I have all these issues too. What about the school isn't doing anything about the poverty I'm experiencing or bullying my child is going through? So right. why should I get on board with this initiative when no one's paying attention or caring about my issues? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's and that's why you know looking at racism as something that affects and uh, and harms white people too is such a really important strategy if you will when introducing these initiatives because then it does kind of create this well it is, this is about me right yeah you know but the fact that people are not going to this place of white people are have done bad things it clearly shows that they're not in guilt and shame mm-hmm. right because that's that's what that stage is like yeah we've done a lot of bad things and i feel really bad about it yep so they're not quite there yet yeah the last thing that i want to point out as we move into stage six 
from guilt and shame that I really took away from our conversation last time that I think is really important and something that I wanted to say again, just to remind everyone that for those of us striving to be an anti-racist, that if we don't show ourselves mercy and love and stay in guilt and shame, that is at the detriment of black indigenous people of color. Like It keeps our energy on ourselves. So showing compassion towards ourselves can seem selfish, but it's more selfish not to. And that was just a big takeaway for me. So know that for those of you who have started to experience some guilt and shame, and I'm thinking if you've been with us through episode 16, you've, you've probably started to feel some guilt and shame here and there. Like know that showing yourself forgiveness, love, and mercy is actually at the benefit of everyone. And so remember that and stick through it so that we can get to stage six. So let's dive into that. So this is kind of like phase two. So stage six is open up acknowledgement. So as we move into this, we really begin to admit clearly that racism and white privilege are serious problems. So we begin to see ourselves as members of the dominant group and to understand that there are political and social benefits attached to this group. So it's really like getting through that guilt and shame. You're like, oh, like, you know, it's almost like a sigh or it's like, yes, okay, this is a big problem, right? And like, I can see that I'm a part of this dominant group and I can see that there's more to us than just our individuality, that our group membership is also an important part of our identity. So this is really where that starts to settle in. And there may be productive anger here. So anytime I get to drop this in, Paul, we are recognizing that we have been bamboozled. (laughs) That's what's going on in this phase. So we're really recognizing that the reality of racism and what it has done to us as white people in terms of separating us from people of color and deeply damaging our worldview. I really like this part. I can think of legitimately exact moments in my life where I've had just a flash of productive anger where it's hit me. I had a big one when very early on in our podcast, I was doing a lot of research into reconstruction, uh, the Jim Crow era, and I had this moment in my office and just the weight of it all was like, how could we have let this happen? How did I not know about this? And I was just like pacing around in my circle, <laughs> right? That's like productive anger because, you know, you're getting out of the guilt and shame part where you're like really acknowledging the reality around us and you're opening up to this. Ken has a picture of Andrew Johnson in his office <laughs> yeah. where he throws darts oh my at. Oh <laughs> That I throw darts at, yeah, okay. bad days. I just <laughs> shout at Andrew Johnson. And you know what's interesting about this stage, too, is one of the ways in which we move from guilt and shame to this stage is to distance ourselves from white people and over-identify with people of color. So we might, like, celebrate diversity. We might put a Black Lives Matter sign out in our driveway. We might put a black box on social media that I saw people were doing, right? But, like, without really understanding the power dynamics of racism. And so that's that's something we have to keep an eye on because cultural appropriation can take place here. So that's a a part that we have to check because a strong analysis of the ways racism impacts our society is still lacking here. So, you know, we're opening up, we're acknowledging that it's a huge issue and we're like, oh my gosh, I have to, have to feel better about this, I have to do something. So I'm gonna over-identify with people of color, I'm gonna distance myself from white people. So just know that that is going to be a part of this process. You wanna check that. Yeah, that's 
that's a really, really great point. It's almost like we overcompensate mm-hmm. or over course correct. We go from this deep, dark place of guilt and shame to almost like a moral high ground yeah. of white exceptionalism and feeling like we are exception to the norm, quote unquote, of white people. And that's it's a really great point. We start to, and I did this because that's yeah. why I'm like, that's, that's a great point because I did this. I distanced myself from other white people. I said, I'm so much better than you. I don't do those things. I don't say those things. I'm not racist like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, really stunted my growth along this continuum. And it put me on this moral high ground, which also kind of led to some performative allyship because it was really about sort of puffing my chest out. And it's kind of the, the intersectionality of masculinity too, like showing the world how great I am in order to get in the good graces of, of people of color. And, totally. and that also leads into that over romanticizing other cultures people of color and just like almost like wanting to be around them all the time because it it makes you feel on this like yeah this moral high ground so it's a really important point to kind of keep that in mind when you move into this stage to to remain humble (laughs) absolutely and and that's really you know moving into this next stage that self-righteousness part Mm. of what is like so important to check because i'm with you i i like have to always check that self-righteousness point and it it is important to call out and and we move into that next stage seven and out of this through proactive efforts to build relationships with white anti-racists and people of color but also through study and analysis of racism and its relationship to cultural and institutional power so a real just continue to study that and, and find out the root causes and a growing willingness to be uncomfortable. So we put ourselves in places, emotional, intellectual, physical places we have not been before and through continued work on issues of racism in our lives. So that, you know, all moving all of those is how we kind of move into this next stage seven mm-hmm. or status seven. Status, yeah, <laughs> status seven, yeah. Yeah. One more thing too. The, the key word, you know, is opening up. And and whenever I think of opening up, I think about curiosity, right? Which is like sort of tell me more, right? And asking questions and exploring it and engaging with things, which clearly is not the mindset in guilt and shame. Like guilt and shame, we want to avoid. We want to push away. We want to maybe even we engage in it, but it's sort of this wallowing and self pity, Mm -hmm. but opening up and curiosity and acknowledgement is just, it's this, I always think of like mindfulness. You just, you just see it as is and sit with it. Mm -hmm. Right. With a place of curiosity and it's still, uh, still assessing and saying like, this is bad. Mm -hmm. But then again, the key word is I'm not bad. This is bad. Or what I did was bad, but I'm not bad. That's the really key difference. Yeah. So status seven is taking responsibility and self-righteousness. So so in this stage, the idea starts to emerge that white can do right, especially me. And this idea of white can do right, like that's quite a difference from guilt and shame. We begin to think about you know, what we're going to do about racism and white privilege. We kind of get into like, you know, get into gear, right? Like we, we, we kind of want to get our hands dirty and get to work. So in the previous stage, we kind of distance ourselves from other white people. But here we see ourselves as part of the white group. And we understand and begin to take responsibility for our power and privilege as part of the white group. What that made me think of is I feel like if you're getting into stage seven and with the opening up and acknowledgement, you're you're like, whoa, this is a big problem. And I think in stage six, it's like there is this idea that it's too big. Like, what could I possibly do to make a difference? 
and and then moving into stage seven and that taking responsibility and seeing ourselves as a part of that white group and be like you know what i i can do right i can do something that's where like that starts mm-hmm. to come in and that's another really impactful one because i know a lot of people who are like it's just way too big what am i possibly going to do like yeah i see reconstruction and jim crow and what and redlining and what we did and it's like it's just too big of a problem there's too many types of discrimination it's just mm-hmm. it just we messed up but what could i do so that's a really important part to start thinking about you know what i, I can do right like i i can do good things with my identity mm-hmm. yeah yeah and think about that mindset and how empowering that is versus like there's nothing i can do totally right yeah. um and and then how that also aligns with our identity of feeling confident feeling motivated feeling good about who we are as, as a human being versus this combination of it's too big and white is bad so so it's 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 just a bad it's just a bad place to be in it's a um but yeah, this this stage is really about where do I fit into this piece of the puzzle? Where where do I fit into this work, which is the basis of this whole podcast? So so a lot of the work that we're doing at this level is on a personal level. Lots of individual work needs to be done. Okun lays out how we engage in the six R's. So there's reading, reflection, remembering, as in our own involvement in racist thoughts, beliefs, and actions. Risk-taking rejection, which is a willingness to take risks and be rejected without turning away from commitment to fight racism. Oh, man, we could do a whole episode on that and my my struggles with rejection. Um, And then there's relationship building. So we begin to see racism as not just individual, but as cultural and institutional. The feelings of guilt, anger, frustration, anxiety continue to appear, but can be liberating as well as painful. We're more open to seeing challenges by people of color and other white people as teaching moments and opportunities instead of simply threatening. We begin to understand that there's no way to do anti-racist work without making mistakes. So I'll give you a quick example right right here and now. Remember a few episodes ago we talked about the spelling of folks mm-hmm. with an X? Mm-hmm. Just today I used it, I, I, I'm writing a blog for um, someone and an editor was looking at it and they saw that I used the word folks with an X and they're like, uh, actually... This was a word that was adopted by black queer folks, and they don't appreciate the word being co-opted and being used. And I was like, all right, well, teaching moment, right? Like my initial thought still was that warm wash of shame, you know, that Brene Brown talks about. And also a little bit of like defensiveness, like, geez, I heard someone else said it's okay. And now you're saying it's okay, you know? So I had to, again, that's still there, that's still present. But um, I was much more able to, to just be like, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's um, a great example. Yeah. Super trans. That, that's a really, that is a transformational point. I think yeah. to be able to get to that point, because just like you, when I've been called out before and it's just like the worst experience yeah. ever, but when you can start to see it as thank you mm-hmm. as, as difficult or harmful or that warm array of shame that initially kind of appears, mm-hmm. you really see it as an opportunity. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, that's a big time step. Yeah. 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 Making mistakes is just, we, we really have to get comfortable with that. The idea of that, you just in general, making mistakes, we're uncomfortable with that. But with talking about race, like we really need to understand that we just don't know a whole lot about race. Added to the fact that you and I are white men who feel overconfident about everything, right? Right, (laughs) Like totally, we think we know it all about everything or we read a book and we think we're experts. Mm Mm-hmm when we make a mistake, it really hits hard because we thought we knew it all, totally. right? And we, we've, we've been conditioned, socially conditioned to think like we are experts and people listen to us. We don't make mistakes. 
So, so it's really sort of an added level of need for humility and being present with that because, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, this is what quoted Resma Menachem a lot. He, he says, like, white people just are, they're, they're infants when it comes to race. We yeah. just don't, we don't get it. We don't understand. Like, right. we're very new at this, on this journey of learning about race. So, so we will make mistakes. Yeah. You know? Right, right. So, and, and that's, it's like, if we want to get better, it will happen. Yeah. We just have to become comfortable with it or, yep. you know, who knows if you're ever going to be comfortable, yeah. but yeah. you have to see it as opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So we really, at the same time, we really need to be careful not to fall victim to false pride and self-righteousness. As we mentioned before, where we find ourselves talking about white people as they, so what's wrong with those white people? I, I just have to say like, you know, cause confession is the heartbeat of anti-racism to quote Ibram X. Kenny, but I am, I'm so guilty of this. And it's something that I have, I'm getting better at it, but it's for sure like I was in the self-righteousness phase for a while. Mm-hmm. And and I somewhat recently have started to kind of get away from that and get mm-hmm. past it. And we'll talk about this more in a later stage as well. Mm-hmm. I think next stage or status. Um, <laughs> but, but like I would look at particularly white men, you know, because I identify with white men. I'm around white men all the time. I'm in a hockey locker room in a hockey league with white men every week. And I'm just like, these white guys don't even know their privilege. Some of like the things that they say, I'm like, they don't even, like they, right? Like I'm like talking about them as white men as if I'm like this superior guy who's got it all figured out. And it's something that I've really had to I've started to recognize and check and I've started to move past that. But man, that was something that I was really, really guilty of. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to work on that still. Yeah. It, it, again, that plays in that individualism, like racism is a individual problem. And, you know, I got to figure it out, but those guys didn't. But at the same time, we're all part of the same system, the same culture. And it's just, it's just not productive at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? Um, no. So... We, move, we begin to move out of this status uh, when we become interested in working with other white people and people of color on issues of racism. We begin to take leadership and risks as we work with others to achieve a collectively defined vision of an anti-racist organization community. It's kind of like you were saying, like starting to, to recognize that we as white people, we're in our infancy when it comes to racism. We have to look mm-hmm. outwardly to learn more and with other people. So talking about working with others, moving into status eight. Before we do that, everyone's favorite quick website break. So we have a website that we would love all of our listeners to check out, www.themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, you can read blog posts, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. So that's just the best way to receive updates on new podcast episodes, blog posts, and relevant topics about how we can collectively work together into getting into status eight, for example. And also, we really do love hearing from listeners. So please feel free to reach out to us on that website. So check it out and reach out to us. Okay, so status eight, collective action. There are only nine statuses. So we're really getting, this is some heavy progress here. So it's at this stage that we also begin to realize that we can't understand what is really happening on our own. So really what you were saying, like as white people, we really understand we need to work with other people. We need to work and talk to and build relationships with women, 
BIPOC people with everyone that we can to really start to gain the best understanding that we can. So this is not necessarily an easy transition. It requires a lot of deconditioning in the ways that U.S. culture has taught us that our strength is in our individuality and our ability to do it ourselves. So we've talked a lot about that. It's something that I've said in this podcast in the past I've really had to work on. I'm still working on it and I'm still getting there. The progress I've made out of individuality into this collective action, that's been a liberating experience for me where it's like, yeah, I don't have to figure this Mm -hmm. out on my own or Mm -hmm. like do this by myself. I can't and I don't have to. Mm -hmm. I can find my strengths in the overall ecosystem Mm -hmm. and contribute how I can. And you can find that way through meeting and talking and working with other people. So we reach out to be in relationships with other white anti-racist allies and people of color in order to develop a solid analysis of what is happening that includes the voices and experiences of a broader range of people. So just kind of what we were saying. So we work to make strategic changes in our organizations and communities consistent with an anti-racist vision and analysis that is collectively built. So that's another big part of this. We actually are doing some work in our organizations and communities. Like at your place of work, to all our listeners, everybody can start to do this and start to work towards this goal with a vision that is collectively built with other people. And with that, we're thoughtful about building meaningful alliances. So we tend to avoid working out of a sense of urgency in those situations where urgency reinforces our white privilege and power. So that's really important too. We can s- just take a step back to, to really learn, ensure that what we're doing is collectively built and it takes that urgency out of it, which is very mm-hmm. white privilege and power, something mm-hmm. like boom, 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 let's go and build this. Uh, we take a step back from that, which is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult dance, obviously. I mean, with racism, it's killing people every single day. Whether that's you know what we see with police brutality, and then what we don't see with like environmental racism, so that's a really difficult thing. Is well, isn't this urgent? urgent like, don't yeah. we need to fix this right now? And yes, we do. However, when you look into some of the downfalls or how a sense of urgency can, like you mentioned, uphold white supremacy and continue to oppress people, it's a really fine line, a really difficult balance of maintaining that you know, your foot on the gas and at the same time ensuring that you're still being inclusive and that we're not just continuing to hoard the power, Yeah, right? right? Like we are in control, we're making the decisions and and, and then we justify by saying, well, it's got to be quick. So sorry that you're not part of this process, but us white folks, we're just going to go ahead and do this. And that's easy to do because, you know, again, because this is an urgent issue to, to address. And you and I are so conditioned as white men to just be comfortable and confident enough to be like, yep. let's go. I'm going to, you know, here are my opinions. Who else wants to say something? Great. We got it. Let's go. When yep. other people who haven't been conditioned in that way for generations, you know, you might have to like pause and really do yes. some more digging and allow some more space and create yes. more comfortable room for everyone to really be able to bring their authentic selves, be able to contribute. And for us white men, like that can be hard. That can check what we've been conditioned to do and just pause and be like, are are we doing this right? Have we heard from everyone? Do we need to open this up? Can we make it more welcoming? Um, And and so that that Mm -hmm. does make it seem less urgent, but better outcomes make less mistakes. 
Another big part of this collective action and status eight is we understand the belief that all white people have racist ideas does not mean that we have an obligation to walk up to all white people and share this insight with them. Right. We try to be strategic about working to build white anti-racist allies. So this is a really big one for me. This kind of aligns with my uh, self-righteousness that I've been moving past with a little bit where it's like, what is my responsibility to call people out or in in every instance that someone says something that either a racist idea supports a racist policy um, is just downright discriminatory against somebody like mm-hmm. like is every single thing I hear do I have mm-hmm. to step in and I think that I've really been in this collective action space where I've started to, to really feel like I'm not obligated to call out all white people for for anything because sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it could do more harm than good Mm -hmm. and really being strategic about building white anti-racist allies that's the most important thing because i can think of different instances in which there would have been zero positivity to me stepping in or me like walking up to this group of white men or white people and sharing this insight with them But there have been instances where I'm like, okay, here is an instance where I do need to step in or I do want to say something or it's really important to me. And I've started, that's that's been a tricky balance for me because then there's that guilt. I'll fall back into guilt. If I look back, I'm like, I should have said something there, right? Or should I have? And and it's it's a tricky balance. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this collective action piece here is important for me because I found that it takes a lot of patience I found it takes a lot of practice to really start to understand when are the instances in which it will be really beneficial or I must or I really should say something or do something about it. And so that's something I'm still working on. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. That's something that I would also kind of get on my high horse and feel like it's part of my duty to, to call it out every time I see it and I'm doing a good thing and and clearly, like like you're saying, there are t- there's a time and place to absolutely do it. It's sort of like you want to intervene anytime, especially if there's harm being done. But again, kind of back to what I was saying earlier, if all we do is focus on those instances of racism, it's not going to root out racism. There also should be energy spent on, especially like talking about the workplace, asking the questions of like, what, there, the, if, if people are saying these things out loud, clearly there's a cultural norm here that's making it okay for people to say these things out loud, mm-hmm. right? So so the real work that will root this out completely across the board is looking at that cultural norm. Yeah. And what needs to be done to change that norm? Does Good that point. mean development of leadership? Does that mean changing policies? Does that mean changing how you do hiring, right? Or, or performance reviews? Probably all the above, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's what's really going to, at the end of the day, stop these instances of racism, these yeah. individual instances of racism, because th- those are always a, a symptom, a sign, if you will, of a deeper problem, mm-hmm. right? If we just put all our energy into these Band-Aid solutions of, it's like this whack-a-mole thing, yeah, right? right? We're never going to root it out. Right. We need to get to like, what is at the root of this? And I think that's super helpful. And this ladder is helpful too, because I will mm-hmm. think about, I'll be like, you know what? I, I think that what's being displayed here or this person's status is at like a status three. And I'm like kind of starting to think like this. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, but for someone who's in a, maybe displaying status three. I don't know if that is that the right way to say it. They're displaying status three or however we want to say it. 
the type of work that needs to be done to get out of status three to status four may not be a quick call out right. in a room. You know what I mean? Because like the status three is not going to be cool with that. And it's probably going to backfire. It's not going to do any good. You're probably going to get mad at each other. Yep. And there's no, but like you can start to think to your point, you know, what's at the root cause of this? What could be a more productive, if I want to do something yep. about this, what could be a more productive way? Yeah. Where can I meet this person? And if you, being strategic about it that way has been really helpful for me. I, I honestly think about the hockey locker room all the time. Yeah. You and I have talked about it because it's just such like, I've, I've brought it up in like our masculinity episodes. Because I can think of instances in the hockey locker room. Like a few things have been said. I'm like, you know, that's just a dumb thing to say. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's not going to help anyone or anything if I just like shout it out in front of this room. Yeah. And there have been instances in the hockey locker room where I have done mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do have that line where like, so I'm not going to sit here if you're just going to say something blatantly yeah. racist, right? And be, you know, but being strategic about how to address that, what to say, calling them in. I called someone in. I can think of this example in a locker room. It was fine. And like my team knows me now and the work I do. And I think that that is helpful for them too, to yeah. maybe at least yeah. like not be so outwardly, you know, yeah. but anyway, I just, it's helpful for me. If I think about my teammate or I'm like, status three, mm-hmm. what would be helpful yes. right now is not this where if you and I were talking, you know, I'd be like, oh, Paul, I think what you just said is racist. And you'd be like, yeah. oh, really? Like, really? And we could have that conversation where yep. if I said, you know, status three, I think, you yeah. know, what you just said is racist. They're like, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you always have to bring this up, right? And and so yep. Yep. it's just really that strategic way is how to make a difference. Yep. Yeah, you're you're spot on. Like, it's, it's a different approach depending on each status. But the goal is the same, right? The goal is to is to acknowledge that harm was done to another human being and that there's a harmful mindset. But how that's delivered to that person is going to matter depending on which status they're in. Yep. Yeah. And the last point of the status that I think ties to this that's really helpful is that we no longer work to separate ourselves from other white people. But we instead instead we tend to understand that we are all simply extensions of each other and see the beliefs, fears, and racism of other white people as reflections of our own. Mm-hmm. And we claim our identity as a white person in a racist society and understand the importance of seeing ourselves as a part of that white group. Mm-hmm. And so why that's helpful for me is because when I see somebody in the hockey locker room say something, I see we're all white males in this world and we've all been bamboozled, right? Like we're all mm-hmm. an extension of mm-hmm. one another. And it's helped me to think about it that way too, where it's like, you know, we've, we've all been kind of taught and conditioned because of our identity kind of the same way. I'm trying really hard to break that down mm-hmm. and hopefully others will too. But to see it, we're almost like we're in this together. I am a part of this white group and I understand that we're extensions of one another. And we have the same beliefs and fears and all yep. these things as humans. And that's helped me too, to really think about us like, hey, we've all been bamboozled. Yeah. I, I, I want us all to kind of, break that down inside mm-hmm. yeah because at the end of the day if someone says something even if it's a microaggression or something outwardly racist maybe the only thing that separates me from that person is i i wouldn't say that out loud but i'd have the thought right right right, right. like that racist thought will come up good point that belief is there but you know the only difference is this person said it for whatever reason and and so is there really that much of a difference between me and that other person and you've kind of learned to check it question it yeah for sure yeah and the other thing i'll say too is you know i've learned a lot 
uh, from, I mentioned Brene Brown a ton, and she did an amazing episode on shame and guilt, especially when it has to do with uh, racial justice work, and she just flat out says, like, shame is just, is a tool of oppression. Yeah. It's a tool of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just not even, it's not even anything to consider as a strategy or a way to address someone or talk to someone where it's going to make them feel shamed. Yes. Right. Like, like, of course, at the end of the day, we have a choice whether or not in a lot of ways that if we do feel shame, clearly people can do something that can put us in a position to feel shame. But that's the responsibility on us that we, we don't even put them in that position and that we we see their humanity, like you're saying, and we see the backstory here, the context of why they might be thinking that. That's seeing their humanity, which is what the opposite of white supremacy is. Yeah. Right? White yeah. supremacy is dehumanizing people. So so that's again where like we need to be careful of saying they, white exceptionalism, like as allies, we use tools of oppression and tools of white supremacy, I think more than we think we do. Totally. Which is just perpetuating the same system we're trying to dismantle. Absolutely. And, you know, with this, the last kind of moving into stage nine, the final stage has to do with that because at the end of this or status eight is you see how complex doing anti-racist work Mm -hmm. is. And as a result, you are less judgmental and more forgiving of mistakes, both to yourself Mm -hmm. and of others. And so it's exactly kind of what you're saying. And, you know, we continue to hold ourselves and others accountable, yet we're able to do it with less self-righteousness and more compassion. Yeah. I think that's really kind of what I'm, yeah, I've been really working on lately. And it's kind of, I think when I was reading this status eight, I'm like, I think that that's really where I'm wrestling with that, like yeah. less self-righteousness, more compassion. And then you, you move into that final stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The final status status. <laughs> Thank you. Community of love and resistance. So the final status in this case, we'll quote Beverly T- Daniel Tatum. Uh, she notes that those who persist in the struggle are awarded with an increasingly multiracial and multicultural existence. In this stage, which we are all still seeking to achieve, we are living and working in strong anti-racist organizations and communities with all the complexities and challenges such a vision brings. You know, I think about that saying that I really love, that diversity is the greatest asset that our country has only if we see it that way. And that diversity of identities and cultures and backgrounds, it's truly a privilege. And I think about that when I think about getting into this mm-hmm. status nine, when you're in a community of love and resistance, you start to feel that and you start to see that truly, if you bring in all these different identities, it is a privilege. That could be the greatest asset that the United States of America has instead of creating divisiveness between (laughs) all of the different identities but recognizing like hey this is an asset let's leverage that Mm -hmm. i kind of think about that with this final status Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and and in this stage we're consistently organizing and building a community that has the power to heal the remnants of racism internalized racist oppression and internalized white supremacy and we've talked about that before with the resma menachem that you've quoted quite a bit from his book is that it's been internalized in us against our will and we have the power to heal from that and it is like healing from it you know we've been socialized this way for generations let's start to socialize a different way for mm-hmm. generations mm-hmm. which can be kind of cool if you think about we're healing from that yeah yeah and I, you know when i read especially that idea of living in and working in multicultural multiracial institutions that's where i kind of feel a little pang of guilt and shame and I don't know, I just, I, I, I want to explore that, engage that a little bit. Like 
there's this one side of me that says we're living in a system in a, in a country where there's been hundreds of years of work to divide us, right? And through through redlining, through hoarding of wealth, like you literally look around at you know most neighborhoods and and there is a racial divide. Like it's very very rare to find a multiracial neighborhood. Um, and then even as white folks, like I, I a lot of times hesitate to even move to a multiracial neighborhood because of some of the gentrification that can come with that, right? And some of the unintended harm and damage of my presence in a multiracial neighborhood. And maybe they don't even want me there, right? Like, and at the same time, we are working towards that multicultural and multiracial experience. We just might not be there in some cases. So I'm saying that because I think there's a lot of listeners, and maybe this is just me trying to assuage my own guilt, but a lot of people are like, feeling super guilt and shame about living in like an all white neighborhood mm-hmm. and like, Oh, the first, what I got, I got to pick up my family and move to a multiracial neighborhood. Not necessarily. Right. And we're, t- and when we're talking about depending on the status you're in, you might be in a status where you need to be really surrounding yourself with anti-racist white folks. Mm-hmm. That's, you can start with your neighborhood. You can start with your school. You can start with your workplace. Yeah. So it's just really about discernment. It's about being intentional. It's about being about careful in what status you're in. Yeah. Um, but but the, I just wanted to spell this fear, or guilt, or shame that like you are a bad person if you live in an all white neighborhood yeah. or you you know it's just not true. Oh, it's a good thing to call out, and especially because you know community of love and resistance and living in an increasingly multiracial, multicultural existence. I think you're right to call it out that that might feel like my neighborhood where I live, but it can mean so many, you know, you can create communities in yep. so many ways for sure. You know, communities at the, the workplace, your extracurriculars, like who you kind of engage with, with what you're trying to accomplish to be a anti-racist. So that's a good thing to call out because it is tricky, you know, because, yeah. because of how segregated our lives have been forever. Yeah. In general, we're just kind of all victim to that. Mm-hmm. So good thing to call out. Yeah. Yeah. And according to this whole, this whole ladder, if we're not in stage nine, we're really not quite in the right place to successfully yeah. be a part of that multiracial experience, right? Because we're going to bring all this other stuff that's really not going to be productive in this particular status, right? Again, I'm not saying don't be a part of multiracial companies or, or neighborhoods, but it's but it's also if you are, be mindful of the status you're in. Totally. And, and, so important. Yeah. And, and what, what unintended consequences there could be from that, what you need to learn and grow and develop in order to, to fully participate and be a part of that community and sort of be a little just self-aware of how your status is, is showing up in this space. So for better important. For worse. So important. And think about this is nine sta- statuses. Status eight is really when collective action comes into play. Like you dabble a little bit in seven and start to in six, maybe a little bit, but like the six of the nine or no, seven of the nine are individual work to ensure that you are like prepared for that or else you will really cause harm. I think that's really important. Yep. Yeah, I think that's such an important part that you bring up. And that's why I'm so glad that we covered all of these statuses in such detail because for us to recognize our status where we're at with other people as we're getting into these multicultural and multiracial existences, you know, hopefully at the workplaces and we see it more and more, we're moving towards that. Uh, it's really important for us to know what might what we might be feeling at different times. And also, again, it helps us to move forward and we want to continuously get better. So I'm really happy that we 
we're able to do this two episode part of, of talking about really all this process that all of us are on. And if you've been with us for 17 episodes, like you are working through this as Paul and I are working on this in real time, as you can see, and how much we've grown through doing this podcast as well. So I'm going to keep working on my status things that I've started to pinpoint and and you can kind of start to think about what you want to work on and where you might be as well. So until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. Thanks for listening to The Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.